Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. Mark Hennick is the recent author of a memoir, So-Called Normal, a vital and triumphant story about perseverance and recovery by one of Canada's foremost advocates for mental health. In today's episode, I talk with Mark about his harrowing moment, a near-death experience on a bridge in his hometown when he no longer wanted to be alive, and how a stranger in a brown coat literally and figuratively saved his life. This, I just wanted to say, was one of my favorite memoirs. I've read oh, thank about 50 of them over the last two years in writing my own, uh, and a so-called normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience. Um, not only was it really well written, but it was so heartfelt and painful to read, palpable sometimes. Uh, and that to me, I think is the, one of the biggest things I notice when people write, can they be themselves? Can they be that vulnerable? Can they share things that they think other people may make fun of them about, right? Which you actually <laughs> address quite a bit in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that you have a, <clears throat> a specific wit to this because I, mm. as you know, from the title of my podcast, Laugh Your Cry Out, I do think it's good to be able to not only assess ourselves at an introspective level, but to laugh at ourselves once in a while too. And that was an interesting journey in the writing of the book because, um, you know, it it went through a lot of drafts. Um, I think, you know, when I wrote the first, um, the first draft of it, it was twice as long as what my publisher actually wanted. Uh, so we, <laughs> we cut a lot from it. Uh, and I had wonder, two wonderful editors who really helped to shape it after that. Um, but my objective uh, initially was just to get it all on the page. Everything that I had read about writing was just get it on the page, worry about it later. Don't, don't try to overstructure yourself uh, too early. So um, that's what I did. And I found in that first draft that my rather quirky sense of humor uh, didn't always translate actually every now and then my editor would flag something and say that's not funny or that's this is dark and i would be i would think it was great um so you know some of those things actually came out but i'm glad that a few of them stayed in uh because that was part of the process too right was recognizing um how much of it makes sense in my head and only my head uh yeah. and then how to actually give that word uh, give the uh, those experiences words Uh, Which really, at the end of the day, ended up being, I think, a good analogy for how I eventually learned to figure out my own mind, uh, was that it was very much like trying to translate uh, or interpret the the phenomena in my head, and then how do I actually express those out into the world, Uh, which I think is the struggle that many of us face. Yeah, no, that's that's very good points. And I I did enjoy that you said, I'm not very good at, I'm not good at very many things. That was kind of how you started out your prologue, which I loved the self-deprecation. That's always a good start. Well, I think it also happens to be true. I try to be (laughs) bracingly honest as well. Uh, And, you know, I used to be hard on myself about that. And I still am in some ways that I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of the skills that I judge to be um, be super helpful, uh, you know, in the workforce. And I think it's partly that's the message we 
get all the time, right? You have to be hyper productive. You have to be amazing computer programmer and great at statistics. And I sit back and think, I'm not good at any of those things. Um, (laughs) But eventually I came to a point where I realized, no, you know, I do have certain gifts uh, that are unique to me and that I have been um, really fortunate to have. And I think in some ways I just never... Uh, regarded them as gifts or talents or skills because I've just always done them. You know, I've uh, I I um, eventually realized that when you find your lane, you can divert from your lane if you want to find new things every now and then, which I've done a lot in my career. But also, don't shy away from what you're really good at and what you love to do. Double down on it. So that's what I do. Well, we'll get to that later as far as your accomplishments because it's funny after reading your memoir to go back through my notes and see that. Oh, okay. He didn't think he was that good at that many things. And I think I can argue pretty strong case against that. But I actually wanted to start with our commonality. Uh, as I shared with you, I even sent you some of my pages around my first episodic depression. Mm. Um, and I have a similar upbringing in reference to a wonderful mother who married someone who wasn't so wonderful. Uh, your father driving by your fourth birthday party with his new girlfriend in his truck and didn't stop was something my father would do. Um, not the exactly woman with the whom he was actually having an affair at the time or yes, prior to that. Right. But yes. yeah. <laughs> to throw the cherry on that poop Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. And that was a very powerful uh, chapter for me because it was, it was sad. Gary, your stepfather, there's a lot here on that. The, the good commonality, you had footprints in the sand in your house. So did my mommy that was on the hallway. So I, I connected with you on that. Your mom's tradition to get you guys baptized. My mom had the same thing. We were born and raised Catholic. Uh, St. Francis Church was our church. And uh, that's very similar to how I think your mom, Brenda, was raising you guys. It was a big piece of her life to make sure you guys were baptized. Very much. My mom, I think to this day, me being confirmed in the Catholic Church may have been her most her proudest day of, of her sons up until our weddings, of course. But that was a big thing for my mom. So those things were neat. And then you mentioned, we didn't see dad much anymore. It wasn't good or bad. And that really hit me. That was a, like a punch. It's a great sentence. And it says a lot about your dad. Do you have a relationship with your dad at all? I do, actually. Yeah, it's funny you know, that, that you mentioned this because he just called me the other day, uh, just a few days ago, and I hadn't talked to him in... Uh, since the book came out, I think not for any other reason than just that you know people grow up and move on and have separate lives. But yeah, um, it was always complicated, and I wanted to try to do this with all of the characters in my book, and I call them characters because they exist in my head, right? They're yeah. it's it's who they are to me, uh, and what I found. Um, repeatedly in my life is that different people mean other things to different people in their lives. We all have different identities to the different people that we're in relationships with. Um, so I was talking to my dad just the other day, and I wanted to cast him in the book as you know somebody who wasn't around a lot, um, who did some things that um, probably catalyzed um, some really negative times in my life, um, but also that there was a lot of positives there too, right? And I see myself in many ways as as problematic of a character as Gary was uh, throughout the book. There were good things in there too. Um, so I like to think of myself as sort of an amalgam of all of these people who have crossed my path and been important in my life for various reasons. Uh, and I and I think we all are and were. And my dad, you know, for better or, and worse, uh, <laughs> has contributed to me as well beyond just genetically. Did he read your book? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, I didn't ask him. Uh, and I think partly for the reason that I don't 
want to know because uh, yeah. you know you put a story like that out there and uh, many many people received it very well. Uh, there were a small number of people, unsurprisingly, you know, you're not you're not you're never a prophet in your homeland uh, <laughs> who who didn't receive it so well. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, of course they wouldn't. Why would they? You know, somebody who may have traumatized you might have might be the most important person in the world to somebody else. That nobody yeah. exists in isolation of other people. And again, the fact is that we are many people to the different people we know. Um, both as a product, I think, of, a ne- of necessity, we behave differently to different people, but also different people uh, know us differently. And the significance that we have to somebody changes their view of us. So, you know, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't ask if you read the book. I know many people in my family have. Um, and I, I think uh, I've been overwhelmed by the support that I've received so far. Well, your sister, Krista, wrote a very sweet uh, review on your book. I noticed that. So obviously she read it. Um, she did, and I mined her memories for uh, significant uh, chunks of the book, actually, uh, either for original content of stuff that I had just forgotten or didn't know about, uh, or to cross-reference things that we had experienced together. Uh, and even that was fascinating, because I remember very early on in the writing process, as, it, as we talked a lot through the writing process, she said to me at one point, Mark, why do you keep talking about all this trauma stuff? The, you know, and I said, because it was traumatic for me. And she said, that wasn't traumatic, it was just normal. And that was partly where the title came from. Oh, I said to her, Krista, wow. this stuff isn't normal. You realize <laughs> that, right? It's normal because yeah. we went through it and we didn't know any other normal. But you realize that not everybody goes through this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, right. and I think that's so often the case in, in enmeshed families, uh, in families where, where there's a lot of dysfunction. You don't know anything else. So you think it's normal. And you have a undergraduate degree in psychology, correct? Uh, in a number of things, it turns out, yeah. uh, psychology, <laughs> philosophy, and interdisciplinary yes. studies. Well, yes. you had to do both, right, to get the actual accreditation yeah. at the time because of, yeah, I'll get into that a little bit. But I asked that, and I preface it that way because a couple of things specific to our similarities. My father was a malignant narcissist, and he was cruel to my brothers and myself and to my mother and to everyone that he touched in his life. My stepfather was a raging alcoholic not a nice man and had a deleterious effect on my brothers and I and my mother. And that's kind of where I wanted to touch on the similarities because it sounds like both of our mothers married the wrong people Mm. (laughs) and or fell in love with the wrong people, which is an issue. But on the heredity side, because I, as someone who suffers from depression uh, episodically and, and anxiety at a chronic level, I have little boys. I know you have three children now, which I'll get Mm -hmm. to as well, but how much of your upbringing, specific to the abuse, Gary's abuse, um, all the stuff you went through as a, as a child, how much do you think that contributed to your mental health and your suicidal ideation at some point? Oh, I think it was one of the primary contributors in many ways. You know, I, I think in in some ways, when I reflect on my past, I don't think I ever really had a you know, I don't think I ever really had a chance, you know, because the it, it, it all started so young. My father left when we were young and the marriage between my parents broke down, which I think was really the what started it all in many ways. But there's also a subplot in the book, um, which you probably picked up on around my mother's process of individuation and how she, you know, came from a very traditional household uh, and and fully expected to have a family and live happily ever after. And then, of course, that didn't happen. And 
there's a bit of an, a narrative of her coming into herself uh, through my story uh, as well. Uh, and I think that both of us sharing the struggles that we did, sharing the journey uh, that we did together, uh, uh, informed each other's stories in in uh, in profound ways. So I think that you know. Can I say I wouldn't have had depression and suicidality had I had a perfect home life? No, of course, because I didn't. Um, but I, I can say in reflecting back uh, uh, extensively that it was uh, a primary motivator behind many of my struggles. And are you okay with me talking about Gary? Because there's certain pieces and parts that just really struck me. You were a little yeah. boy. You were in second grade. He had a courtship phase where he was charming and... Mm-hmm courted your mother in the dating phase. And then once you guys got together, you were riding in his pickup truck to go pick up some scrap. And you made a joke about mm-hmm. how many F-bombs he dropped yeah. while he was talking to, I guess, his, his vendor. And he said specifically, you better learn to mind your own fucking business. Except he said it really loud and very stern and very scary. And that was a moment where you realized this is not the guy that my mom is in love with, or maybe this is the guy that my mom's in love with, and we yeah. just saw the other side of it. That had to be a little disconcerting as a young boy to realize that this is now the the male figure in your life. Yeah, and I think in some ways I, I kind of circled around that moment because I still remember it like it was yesterday as being one of those early times where I really felt afraid. You know, yeah. and that and fear came to be one of the defining feelings of my childhood. Um, feeling afraid of of, uh, of getting hurt, of getting left behind, of not being able to trust people who who are mm-hmm. supposed to be defending you. Uh, but then also came in with that. You know, immediately following that part of the book was this feeling of guilt. I shouldn't feel this way about this person. He's so nice, you know, and and he was right. nice, and he was a good provider, and he was all these other things at the same time. And I didn't yet learn that you can have conflicting emotions. That that's okay, uh, and people can be conflicting ways. Uh, um, that's not that's not unusual. Nobody's entirely a villain or entirely a hero. We are all right. complex. But that that moment for me was when I distinctly remember uh, that that feeling of shock and fear and not being able to tell anybody about it. Because there's a, I'm not a fan of the phrase toxic masculinity, but it is bantered about in our culture. Mm-hmm. And Gary, and my stepfather have very similar characteristics that way. It was, I'm a provider. Uh, I felt the same fear. My stepfather had a very big baritone voice. Mm-hmm. He was strong. He was uh, an executive at IBM. He was successful, right? Heavy quotes. Mm-hmm. And he came from a very unhappy marriage and he had three children who were all wonderful kids, but we all moved in together in his house, much like you guys moved into Gary's yeah. house. And I still to this day, as I want, unwound a lot of this anger in therapy, was he was so angry and he yelled so loud and he was so intimidating that I never forgot that. And I, yep. to your point, you just, there's a point in time where you realize I'm not safe. This isn't yep. good. I, I don't feel safe in my own home. And that's the neuroplasticity then that starts to take place in your brain and starts to shape you as a kid. Yep. And I think that's where for me, when he said things like pink is for girls and faggots and be a man, all those very awful, unevolved comments are things that you don't forget, obviously, because you wrote them and you chronicled them. They affected you, I think, in a very 
powerful way. And that- yeah, and and I think such that it really gave me a better understanding of our internal uh, monologue, our internal voice. Uh, and I had never previously questioned before, just because I'd, I'd always had it, and I've, I've since learned that not everybody actually does have an internal monologue, but um, I'd <laughs> never previously questioned, where does that come from? You know, that voice that you hear in your head that's yours, uh, yeah. that tells you a variety of things. And it was in writing the book that I realized that I had absorbed a lot of those messages, you know, to toughen up, to be a man. Man, don't man. cry. Yeah. Don't you know? Don't be weak. Uh, I, I much later realized that these are the things he told me that originally started out in his voice, but because I repeated them so many times in my memory, they started to morph into my own voice. Uh, so th- yeah. those ideas were planted in me from a young age, and that's where I think masculinity on its own isn't toxic, of course, um, but that's right. where it becomes toxic, where it starts to actually hurt uh, instead of help. Uh, and and yeah. all of those ideas came from his own woundedness as well. I think. I think that's a big piece of it. I don't. I think my stepfather. I love him. He has a big heart, but I don't like him yeah. as a person. He was very mean to us. He was very mean to my mother until she finally left him. And I think to your point, I don't judge anyone because I'm flawed in so many ways that I I don't think anybody's all evil or all good. Right. And the, the, the amalgam there is kind of how you deal with that human being. But when you went to your first, you were, how old were you when you realized that you wanted to harm yourself? Were you 12? I was 12 the first time that I actually expressed that kind of intent when I was in middle school and, uh, uh, and a teacher had found out. But I, w- I would peg it as actually much earlier than that. I mean, at, at least 10 years old, but really honestly, probably even earlier in more rudimentary ways. Because remember, these thoughts, these uh, whether it's suicide or um, social anxiety or depression, mm-hmm. I think the roots of those thoughts begin much earlier. You know, this fear of, of reaching out for help, this desire to escape, um, this, this general sense of, I don't want to be here. I think these are the, yeah. the um, building blocks that eventually uh, lead to suicidality. And was it at 12 was with the teacher? Was that when you actually started to draw? Yeah. Hang, you drew a whole bunch of different pieces um, for your teacher who then asked you like, what are these? Is this a rocket ship? And you're like, no, yeah, it's, it's a hangman. And I'm, yeah, I drew 10 different ways that I, that I could end my life. And, and I really think that, um, those thoughts had been brewing in my head for at least two years by that point, because what started off as this amorphous kind of uh, thoughts in, in my head eventually started to become words and narrative, and only then later came out as drawings. You know, it, it had been percolating for a long time inside me, uh, and that's when it first came out, when I first drew those 10 drawings uh, on the margins of a test I was about to fail. And you referred to it as a suicide brainstorm. Right. Yeah. That was where you're just like, these are all the ideas I have that I could. I, and that's the ideation piece, right? For the listeners that don't really know what that term means, it's, it's when you actually start to mentally picture yourself harming yourself or taking your own life, right? That's right. And what you're doing then psychologically is rehearsing. You're figuring it out because it turns out you're not born knowing how to kill yourself. Uh, right. That's something you learn how to do. I firmly believe that suicidality in many ways is learned, it's rehearsed uh, cognitively. We build a pathway in our mind. Uh, and that's exactly what I was doing. I was taking all of those early building blocks. I was assembling them. Uh, and there were lots of intervention points along the way uh, where that could have been could have been curbed. But so often, I, and I believe that this is uh, the, the fundamental and biggest problem of suicide prevention now, is that we're coming in way too late. We're coming in after the person is already suicidal. We should be treating suicide 
uh, when people are at risk of suicide. We should be treating it when they're at risk of mental health problems and illnesses like depression, for example, uh, which tends to, to lend itself the most to people later becoming uh, suicidal. So I think that's the problem. By the time people are already suicidal, it's not too late by any means. I'm a living example of that. Um, but it's definitely later than it needs to be. And so Mr. Nichols discovered this on your your exam, and then it was about almost a year, or it was before your 13th birthday that you started therapy the, for the first time, correct? Yeah, shortly before my 13th birthday. And really for me, it was... Um, it was a positive experience. It was very rudimentary, I now know, very rudimentary cognitive behavioral therapy light, kind of. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it was a social worker who was talking, who I remember she drew pictures of two neurons and drew the serotonin molecules between them and said that I might need more of those little molecules. And uh, we talked about, you know, the, the basic linkage between my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh, and all told, it was only, I think, uh, half a dozen or eight sessions or something like that. Um, but it was actually really helpful for me because it was kind of like, oh, somebody actually knows what this might be like and, can, right. and there's some strategies to get out of it. You were, you were, maybe someone named it for you for the first time, right? Yeah, like, and even just the diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. Even just the diagnosis was incredibly helpful early on. I mean, later on, that would become problematic and later on, the helping systems would become problematic. But that at that barely, very early stage, um, being able to, to somebody be able, able to point to the dictionary definition uh, of this amorphous thing in my head was incredibly helpful. And that was Amy, right? Is that her name? We use pseudonyms for a number of people oh, yes. in the book, but okay. yeah, <laughs> yes, that's, that's the name true. that we used. Yeah. yeah. And you liked her though. She was and it was a short-lived relationship. It was like four months and then she got transferred out. And you mentioned that mental health staff is very temporary, right? And I'm yeah. paraphrasing you on that, but that's something to do with, there's a lot of turnover in the health industry, correct? Yeah, that's right. And this was one of the examples of when um, I, I, again, only much later realized as, as I was looking at all of my medical records that um, when I got help that I needed, I seemed to actually get a little better. Uh, and then when the help went away, I didn't. I got worse. So this isn't rocket science, you know. It's right. that I needed help. I got help. I got better. The help went away, as happened in this case. The therapist moved on, and and as is the cliche, the miracle of modern medicine, as it applies <laughs> to mental health, is that when people yeah. start feeling better, they stop doing the supports right. that help them to feel better. When I use a, a story as an analogy of learning how to ride a bike, uh, and my training wheels were taken off too early, and I yeah. fell down, wiped out, and sprained my wrist. Well, it was very much so uh, with my mental health. I enjoyed learning some new strategies, but I'd been learning them for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was. Right. It's not like I was suddenly going to change <laughs> yeah. my brain. Right? You weren't a master. Yeah. No, exactly. Had but you know, had I, had I had the opportunity to do that for longer, that's one of those junction points where I think everything potentially could have changed or at least uh, gotten uh, marginally better. But it was certainly not the case where when she left, uh, I, uh, I decompensated rather quickly. Well, that's another thing I liked about your memoir is you use stories to talk about topics. And you used a car collision as an example where you were in the car, you saw the people in your rearview mirror, those two young guys. You think he was even smiling because he wasn't paying attention and they hit you really hard mm -hmm. and caused some severe damage for you physically where you were on crutches. And I don't know if it broke anything or if it just tore ligaments. But you actually equated that to a level of peace almost because you had physical pain that people could see 
Mm-hmm. You could name the physical pain. You could prognose, you could actually diagnose the pain and you could find out, I need to do these things to get better. And that was where with mental health, it's invisible. People can't see it, right? And that, yeah. that piece of you was, I think, a powerful story because it, it was for the first time where you're like, well, now people can see my limp. They can see the crutches. They can see the pain. Yeah. And they couldn't see any of the pain previous to that. Well, and I think that's all anybody with uh, who's struggling emotionally really wants is somebody to see them really uh, and, and to empathize with them. And and really, you know, when somebody has a is on crutches, nobody accuses them of just wanting attention. When you ask, you know, if if they can right. open the door for you or give right. you the key to the elevator or whatever it is, uh, as we needed the key in in, in my school, but. Um, you know, when you're when you have depression, that's the first thing that people say. Oh, they just want attention. Uh, right. Well, yeah, of course. Who doesn't need attention and connection and uh, to to feel deeply seen and and uh, empathized with? Of course, they do. Why wouldn't they? So I think that's part of what kept driving me back to hospital and what ended up becoming a habitual cycle um, was that I had seen firsthand how hospitals, doctors, that system can help people, can fix people. Uh, and that's the only system that seemed to exist for helping me with my mind. So I kept trying to go back to unlock it. And unfortunately, not only did it not work, did I not find the solution for my um, my increasingly sick thoughts there at the hospital. In some ways, it made my struggle much worse. And that was... And then you actually went, and I, I may I bounce around here, so I may if I screw up your <laughs> the actual path of your flow of your book. But I remember when you were you went to a shop class or a some kind of home home cooking class and asked for a knife, yeah. and the teacher was like, "Here," because <laughs> obviously she wasn't thinking you were suicidal. Yeah. And you took well, the knife. That, that, that was one of those moments where I think I had learned. I started started to liken the depression in my brain uh, to a hijacker or somebody who had yeah. taken over. Like I didn't really know what I was doing or even necessarily have a plan. Or it was still in the developmental phase. But I remember noticing that when I asked the teacher for the knife, it, you know, she didn't immediately enthusiastically give it to me. I saw a bit of hesitation, a bit of inquiry, and mm-hmm. I just heard myself make up this lie that we're having cake in class, and the teacher had sent right. me down to get a knife. Why would I want to make her more comfortable with giving me a knife? Well, because I didn't want her to find out, right? Right. Um, So I I think that's where I first, uh, later in the writing process, realized what I was doing. And I was trying to make other people more comfortable. But that's exactly what was keeping me trapped in this suicidality. And that, Mr. Nichols, the same teacher that found your suicidal brainstorm, you went and talked to him, had the knife in your backpack, pulled it out. And put it to your throat. I did, yeah. And I think, you know, the only reason that I went there, because I had wandered around the school with it for a period of time, the only reason I went back there was because I vaguely knew this guy was somebody who was nice to me. It wasn't any more complicated than that. And this is what people don't realize. It's that you can set up all these great clinics and wonderful programs and and phone lines and all that stuff is really useful. Or They're all really useful resources. But if people don't like the experience of going there or they don't know about it or they're scared to go to it or any number of other barriers, then they won't reach out for help at the times that really matter when they're in crisis. So I think the reason why I went to talk to this guy was because he was nice to me before and he tried to help before and um, he didn't dismiss my problems as readily. Um, So that's where I think, 
you know, much later when I became a mental health clinician myself, and it's always a journey that I, I think I'm always trying to improve on, is introducing this idea of good customer service, essentially, into mental <laughs> yeah. health care. Like I, I, I was, when I was first out of college, I worked at, uh, uh, at a large retailer selling clothes that people didn't need uh, that they probably couldn't afford. Uh, <laughs> and there was so much focus on you have to be really nice, really respectful because you want to move more clothes. And sure. I couldn't help think about this idea. Why do I get treated nicer when I'm buying socks at The Gap than I do at the most vulnerable time of my life when I'm going into a psych ward and nobody will look me in the eyes and they'll ignore me through the fishbowl nursing station uh, and they're and it, and they're screaming and it smells like body you know secretions. Why yeah. is this so miserable when I need help and and empathy and niceness the most? But I can go in and buy a pair of socks or underwear at the Gap and everybody is fawning over me. That seemed like a fundamental <laughs> reversal of how things should be. Yeah, that's a little, that's a gross dichotomy. You, so your first, and that was this, this is the first one I've read for my podcast that you actually were entered into a psych ward. And so I haven't, mm -hmm. I mean, I've read other by, but this one, um, someone I've actually talked to <laughs> went to a psych ward. That had to yeah, be many times. Yeah, yes, many times. over and over and over. Yeah, and that that very first time sticks out. Like they all they all kind of blend together in a way, but I also remember each of them for their own reasons. But that very first time was was the most terrifying uh, because there's this man sitting in the same room with me. He was much older than me. We didn't have child separate child and youth wing or anything like that. Everybody was just in together, uh, regardless of what their needs were, regardless of their age. And this man starts screaming late at night, we will overcome, we will overcome, he's screaming, and, and it wakes me up. And then he just goes back to bed, and all the nurses knew who he was, so it wasn't a big deal. And, and meanwhile, nobody took the time to explain to me what was happening, or even to bother to see the world from my perspective, right? That, hey, yeah. here's this 12-year-old kid. Maybe this was kind of terrifying for him. Maybe we should have a conversation. Nobody did that. So that is one of the examples, I think, for me of, I came to this place to get better, and all of a sudden, I'm just more afraid than I ever was before. I, I, I was going to ask you that, but you answered it. Because I would have been terrified at 12 years old to be in a psych ward by myself, sterilized bed, big heavy doors, echoey hallways, people screaming <laughs> at the top of their lungs next to you. And, well, and, you and particularly some of the more more physical um, elements, you know, being strapped down to a stretcher, uh, being given needles that you didn't want to be given, uh, having people in the room with you to watch you pee and shower because you're not allowed to do those things on your own. It's entirely dehumanizing. Um, and when you're there, vulnerable, feeling out of control anyway, um, yeah. I, I couldn't help but think the objective here is to control my behavior, not to control my emotion or not to help my emotions. And that's what it's known as in the United States, of course, is behavioral health. That's a terminology that I actually tend to take issue with because we need to be more concerned with the whole person than just the behavior that we see. You know, if we punish people or scare people into fixing their behavior, into being compliant with their treatment, that doesn't mean you're necessarily fixing anything at all. You're just fixing what they show you. You, you also mentioned a guy named Jim, and I know you changed a lot of names, but he was scary and he took offense to you talking to his peers or his boss about his behavior, which was cruel and mean-spirited. Was he an anomaly in that group? Or did you see a lot of people that were also just over it? 
that they just they yeah. they deal with so much trauma and so much let's just say uh angst on a daily basis that they just lose their patience is that how is the staff as a whole is it yeah comforting? you know i think I, I i encountered a lot of people uh professionals uh, in my in my mental health journey and the vast majority of them fell somewhere in the middle. You know, they're they're yeah. the worker bees who are they're there to do their nine to five. They're okay, they're fine, but you know, they're they're doing their job. There were a few who were really empathetic, really helpful that I connected with for a variety of reasons. And then there were a few who were the opposite, who were either cold or actively uh, harmful uh, in their approach. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I think like anywhere else, there's there's a, a wide spectrum. Um, but that individual in particular was somebody who who uh, was deeply triggering for me in a variety of ways. And I say in the book, you know, the incident happened that I was talking in his little classroom because I was on the um, psych ward at that point for a couple of weeks. Uh, so we were doing these academic style classes. And I was wrong, clearly. I mean, if you have a teenage kid talking in your classroom, of course, that's going to be annoying. But in that context of a kid who is uh, uh, struggling anyway, you're a teacher on a psych ward, you would think you'd yeah. have a little bit more empathy, which of course <laughs> that, wasn't, wasn't the case. That's what struck me, I think, was you mentioned you were decades younger than your fellow patients. And as most people, I had a, a, another interview recently where he went to rehab and he said the same thing that you said, I'm not crazy, I shouldn't be here, I'm not as bad off as these other people. But when you're, when you experience that level of drama and anxiety, which is provoked, that's that's one of those things that started to make you do things. Was this the first time this this specific time that I mentioned wasn't um, where you cut yourself? But then there was a similar story later on in another psych ward where you began to cut yourself for the first time, and that was due yeah, to so you were triggered this, this by. Yeah, so this the, was the yeah. same uh, the same uh, hospital where I encountered the conflict with the teacher shortly thereafter. Okay. Um, so most of my hospitalizations were in the same basement psych ward in my hometown, which was all adults except for me generally. And then there's this one other that was a couple of weeks stay uh, in a child and youth um, mental health wing about five hours away from my hometown, right. um, where I where I had locked myself in the bathroom and and right. uh, and did this. And discharged, I think, two or three days later after that scene as an isolated incident. You know, these were all um, examples, I think, of everybody, or, or the message that I received anyway, was a lot of really smart people trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, and nobody ever really did. You know, there were, there were a few glimmers of helpful people here and there. Um, but the focus was always on what's wrong with Mark uh, and how can we fix his brain? When it turned out, I don't think that's ever really what was what I needed uh, from the very beginning. What did you think you needed? I needed somebody to see the struggle and the pain that I felt inside. I needed somebody to help me translate my emotions into appropriate actions and words. Um, mm -hmm. I needed somebody to uh, connect with that that frailty, that fear that I felt inside, rather than just trying to diagnose it and medicate it away. Um, I think I needed skills more than I needed uh, somebody to try to, to um, medically fix something that was wrong with me. I wasn't broken. I, I wasn't broken. It was, the, it was the system. It was the healthcare system that made me believe that I was broken because they needed a problem to fix. Uh, meanwhile, I was a, a fragile kid, I think, who was struggling uh, to try to understand himself and his surroundings. Hmm. And do you, 
has it changed since then? Because to me, it doesn't make sense to put a 12-year-old in the same environment as adults. Sure, and the Is World that- Health Organization has identified that as a failure of the system, that it's a violation of, of uh, uh, kids' rights to do that. I think fact. so. Has it changed? No. No. No, um, actually, it, it, this is very common, especially in. I mean, in, uh, I'm laughing because it's so tragic, but it is. It, it is. It's very common in rural areas, in, in particular. Um, I think one small change that they made. Oh, well, I suppose it's not that small, but I believe in uh, Cape Breton, my hometown. Now they're uh, transporting kids more frequently, uh, five hours away uh, to the larger city. Uh, okay. Uh, when they're in crisis there, but even that on its own, my transfer. From Cape Breton to Halifax, they strapped me, strapped me down on a stretcher. They gave me a Haldol needle, I think, or whatever the sedative was that they gave me. Um, and that on its own was confusing and difficult and uncomfortable. And, you know, why would we need to transport somebody that far away uh, for treatment that might not even be what they need? And did they medicate you at the time? With Did they say you have... I mean, because I've gone to a lot of therapy. And when I first went, they said, you need this medication. And they gave me Klonopin. And I took it and my brain just went crazy. It was like, it almost woke my brain up. And it was so good, in fact, that I told the doctor I didn't like it. I said, this this isn't a normal feeling. I don't, I feel blissful. And I don't think that's what I was looking for. I have some trauma that I need to unwind, but, and I I never, I didn't continue with the meds. Um, And I did continue with the talk therapy. So did you get both at an early uh, age? Yeah. So I was on a cocktail of medications, uh, switched up many times to different things, probably more than a dozen different medications, uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, uh, antipsychotics, um, a couple of um, uh, seizure medications that were prescribed off-label for different reasons, uh, a variety of different medications. Uh, some of them worked a little bit, um, some of them made me a whole lot worse. I remember there was one, <laughs> at least one antidepressant in particular that made me much, much more suicidal. Uh, and now we actually know, and it was around the same time that black box warnings came into effect, where if you prescribe many antidepressants to kids uh, under 18, or actually, in fact, we now into the 30s, this effect can happen, uh, it'll make them more suicidal. Now, I thought, I was suicidal because my brain was broken. Remember, I thought I was failing right. the treatment uh, when right. in fact it was probably one of the medications that was making me more suicidal, but nobody explained that to me at the time. Uh, and then a variety of other medications that either made me groggy or sleepy or, or dazed or drooling or, you know, there's all kinds of different things in there. Um, so I, I, it was much, much later uh, after college, I think actually, uh, where I eventually found a medication in, that did, in fact, uh, work well for me. Um, a single medication? Are you on a like single one? medication? Okay. Yeah, and it actually turned out that my body was so sensitive that when I took the generic version of that medication, uh, well, chemically the medicine was the same. Um, when it's a generic, not to get too deep into it, but the coding didn't have to be the exact same. So my body metabolized the coding differently of the generic version, and it actually gave me panic attacks. It made me very anxious because it metabolized too fast. But when I was on the brand name version of that particular medication, it actually worked really well um, for what I needed. Uh, And I took that for years um, until eventually I was able to come off it with the assistance of psychotherapy. Uh, But as a young person... Yeah, as a young person, I received um, uh, talk therapy... uh, Twice, really. Uh, the first time was helpful. Uh, the second time, less so, because I felt like the the clinician didn't really have 
a, a depth of, of um, skill uh, that really would have helped me. How old were you when you had talk therapy? First? Was it when you were 15, 14, 15? Yeah, so the first time was right after, I think, the first hospitalization for eight weeks, I believe. Uh, and then the second time after the knife incident when I was going back into hospital for, for several weeks. Uh, but it was never kind of an in-depth, weekly, tracking progress, you right. know, bu- skill-building kind of thing. Uh, it was always a very basic, let's go over what depression is and let's look at this pamphlet oh, about you know CBT. And uh, it was never particularly uh, in-depth. You're like, I've done the CBT drill and I've seen the actual serotonin drill. I appreciate that. I need to yeah. talk to somebody. Because I asked because they wanted to med- medicate me. And then I went and interviewed psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I specifically went to psychologists versus psychiatrists because I didn't really want meds. My brother who suffers from chronic depression is on heavy Zoloft. My little brother was bipolar. So he was much like you. They were throwing cocktails at him, but he was such a raging drunk that you couldn't find a baseline. So he never found his peace. And so for me, I interviewed someone, I interviewed a lot of people, but when I talked to my eventual therapist, she said to me, she started asking me questions about, did your father do this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did your father say this? Yes. And then I, I started falling in love with her because these are questions that hadn't been posed before. I was like, oh my God, yeah, you know, you know. And she said, well, your father fits this mold and this is what, your father may be sociopath. He may be a narcissistic personality disorder. He may be malignant narcissist. And I've heard all of them. And my brother and I chronicled that in our memoir. But my dad was not well. Let's just say that. And she said something to me that I never forget. And this is why I chose her. She said, I need you to come every Wednesday at five o'clock. And I need you to bring me a check. And I was like, a check? Like a physical check? <laughs> she said, yes. And I said, I don't even know if I have any of those. But I said, I can find him. And she said, yeah, I need you to bring me a check. And if you don't, we will not have our session. And you have three weeks to make up the session. And if you do not, you still pay for it. If you do that twice, I will remove you as a patient. And I was like, damn. So she was not, I was interviewing her, but she was like being very strict with me after a 45 minute conversation because one thing she realized was that I was not attentive to myself. And that's exactly what she said. I said, can I pay up front? Joey, a check at five o'clock every Wednesday. And you need to come once a week. And I'm like, for how long? She's like, I I don't know, but you're not well. And we need to get you well. And I was like, okay. And I sat on a couch in front of Dr. J for eight years and we unwound all of this. And that's why I was so happy to hear that you got rid of the meds and you went to talk therapy because I do believe that the both of them together, that amalgam is very good. But I think the talk therapy, and, and I'm not educated like you are in this area, outside of my own homework around my own mental health and my brothers, yeah. but talk therapy seems to be, it's at least half of the equation. You know, I think it's probably much more than half, actually. I mean, med- look, medication helped me when I needed it at a period of time. I'd also had a hard time with a lot of... Uh, for a lot of my life with it too. Um, but I, I'm glad that I finally found something that worked. I wish it hadn't taken so long to get there. Uh, and yeah. that's, I think, an area where we can make a whole lot more progress as more personalized medicine. How do we get people connected to the medication that has the highest chance of actually working for them yeah. without all of these other uh, this other stuff on the way there? 
But ultimately, I think, and I think this is the the case for the majority of mental health problems and illnesses, psychotherapy, evidence-based psychotherapy worked better. Uh, And there are many, many studies to show this, actually. Um, The problem is that it's expensive, that most people don't have access to it. And I tend to think, actually, that while we've come a long way in breaking down mental health stigma in some areas, um, certainly around medication, I think there's much less shame around taking medication for your mental health now. Yeah. We see that just in the in the prescription rates. I think second to birth control, uh, antidepressants are among the most uh, prescribed medications in, in many workplaces and, and areas of society. Um, but uh, that will help you might help you with some of the symptoms, but it's unlikely to do the work, as as is said in psychotherapy. Yeah. It's unlikely to reverse the actual um, thinking patterns, maladaptive coping mechanisms, uh, and things that are underpinning the illness itself. And, you know, it, it'll look a little bit differently if you have schizophrenia, for example, or bipolar right. disorder or right. something else. But, uh, you know, it's not to say psychotherapy won't work in those cases. It's actually highly effective in all of those circumstances, too. Um, but not every mental illness is created the same, and not every person's manifestation of specific mental illnesses is the same either. Um, right. You know, one one thought on that is that uh, people with depression, for example, there's r- some research to show who have uh, no history of trauma tend to respond a bit better to medication. But people with depression who have a history of trauma tend to respond better to psychotherapy. Um, So it's all about understanding what the landscape is of your particular iteration of of a mental health struggle. Uh, And then finding the type of treatment and having access to the type of treatment that might actually work for you. You know, that's great. I appreciate that because I, for me, psychotherapy was wonderful. And it was expensive. She didn't take insurance. So that was another issue with our society here in America is that there is the have and the have nots. Fortunately, I was able to afford a top rated therapist and sit on a couch and pay her $10,000 a year. And Well, and actually, the, the, you just raised a, a, another really good point, too, is that sometimes, because we still have such little sophistication in terms of men, our mental health literacy, we think that psychotherapy is all the same. There are yeah. hundreds of different types of psychotherapy, period. Yeah. And then even within that, I mean, everybody does cognitive behavioral therapy now, but that doesn't mean they're all very good. There are lots Correct. of people working in the mental health space who either probably shouldn't be uh, or or who don't have the kind of training and standardization that they really should have. Yeah. So I hear this all the time from people. Oh, I talked to a therapist and it didn't work. No, you talked to that therapist and it exactly. didn't work. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you have, even if you talk to five, there's no yeah. guarantee that A, the type of therapy that you tried is what you need. And there's no guarantee that the clinical fit uh, with any of those people was what you need. So really, there are endless options, both for the type of therapy that might work for you and for the type of therapist who might work for you. Yeah, it's a great point. Mine was a very decorated and respected psychotherapist here in San Francisco. And she turned out to be exactly that. She, She saved my life. She unwound so much anger and self loathing that I could stop hurting myself. I never, and I actually didn't know I was depressed because I was never suicidal. I was at points of my life where I was okay with dying. I was so miserable. I remember being in a bank. I had $50 check from my mom so that I could put it in the bank to not bounce a $30 check. (laughs) And there was some lunatic at the front desk making a huge scene and, and yelling and screaming. And I thought, you know what? If this guy pulls out a gun, I'm going after him. Because I'm going to go out as a hero. <laughs> I'm going to take him out. And if I die, I die as a hero. Because I was just not, I was in that place. So yeah. suicide by cop or all the different pieces that you read about, that's as far down as I've gotten. But I've never been where you are. 
And so I just want to say, I'm sorry that your brain and your upbringing brought you to that because that sounds awful. It, the, the pain in which you weaved in your narrative was palpable and yeah. I felt it. And it, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry that you had to go through that because that's... Well, you know, and I don't think anybody should have to go through that, of course, but also I'm the first one to say that I wouldn't be who I am today if not for who I was and what I've been through. Um, so I think that part of it is that, look, we uh, I, I learned this from my Irish Catholic upbringing, life is hard. What are you going to do with it now? I think at yeah. the end of the day, what kept me stuck myself um, was that that fixation and the friction that came from it on why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite um, therapeutic concepts comes from the mindfulness tradition and from dialectical behavior therapy, which is this idea of acceptance and change. You didn't ask for what happened to you. You didn't, you didn't want it, and it shouldn't have happened to you, but it yeah. did. At some right. point, you have to accept that and move on. Only when you accept your circumstance as it is can you really truly grow and change. And then, even better, I think, and I learned this through writing the book, that you, you at some point realize that you get to decide what your story means to you. That nobody yeah. else can tell your story, or they might want to, and they might try to, but at the end of the day, you're the one that gets to decide what the point of your story is. Purpose isn't found. Purpose is created. You get to do that yourself if you're so empowered. That's a great point. And I think your story is powerful, and I've watched your TED Talk, and it's all due to a guy in a light brown jacket. The reason you're still here, the reason you're talking to people, the reason you're saving lives and helping millions of people through your story, you jumped up on a bridge in your neighborhood that overlooked a retired steel mill. So it was just verboten and a mess and barbed wire fences with chicken, or actually barbed wire around it. And one of the thoughts you had while you were up there in the rain was that you need to make sure that you jump over the fence with barbed wire on it because you didn't want to hurt anymore. Right. You just wanted to end it. You want to talk, well, this is obviously one of the biggest moments of your life. What was going through your head on that bridge at age 15? Yeah, you know, for me, my desire to die, my habit of wanting to die, uh, was never for the sake of just dying on its own. I didn't want to kill myself just to die. Uh, I wanted to kill myself because I didn't know how to live. I didn't want to live with what I was currently living with, and I didn't know how else to do it. I didn't, I didn't have any other skills uh, to break free from, from the trap that I had found myself in. Um, so for me, I went to that place because that abandoned steel plant that was a toxic waste site reminded me of how I felt inside. You know, I, I, there's so much in my book around the connection between my environment and my, my physical place uh, yeah. as being connected to and reflective of my inner state. Uh, and that was one of them. So uh, like you said, if, if that stranger hadn't have interrupted that thought pattern, uh, and this really speaks to the fact that... that um, change is often hard. Psychotherapy is often hard and painful. It's not a walk in the park. No. Um, and that was my first kind of, it sucks. It, and it, it often sucks. sucks. And that's yeah. okay. And the most beautiful part of it, and this is what I shared with that stranger, was that if it, it, it's going to suck, so it might as well suck with somebody else. It, there's no right. more therapeutic feeling in the world, I think, than going through something hard with somebody rather than alone. And that's all I really wanted. So that's what that stranger did for me. He pierced that loneliness uh, and he saw me. And he was just walking by, correct? Or was he driving by? 
inside. He was driving by. He noticed me. Many people drove by, actually. And I have this this um, uh, uh, sound in my head where the, the bridge had these um, section connectors. And whenever cars would pass over it, bum, bum, their tires bum. would make a thump, thump sound. <laughs> yeah. And I have that that beat uh, in my head of all the people uh. who drove by who didn't see me. But for whatever reason, accidentally, I guess, this guy saw me. He uh, apparently stopped at a convenience store at the other end and called 911. Uh, or told the, the clerk to call 911, and then he came back and he talked to me. And do you remember, because you said in the book you don't remember really what he was saying. You just remember he was asking you questions. He wasn't trying to talk you out of jumping. He was just trying to keep you from jumping until I think the authorities got there. Was that his plan? Yeah, it probably stalling, I imagine. But yeah. um, I felt like by that point, I had talked to so many mental health professionals and so many experts that I knew what they all sounded like. And he didn't sound like any of them. He didn't ask me about my diagnosis. He didn't judge me and say that what I was doing was stupid. Uh, he didn't tell me to, uh, you know, any of those empty platitudes. Tomorrow's another right. day. Right. That's right. part of the problem. Tomorrow's another day. Right. I um, don't want to be here tomorrow. <laughs> that's right. That's the whole point. But yeah. he didn't do any of that. And and he he just talked to me. He got to know me. Uh, and that for me was was the connection that I'd been seeking because every doctor that I had talk to. They just wanted to, they were treating me like I was a broken down car on the side of the road that they just needed yeah. to fix the problem that was Mark. Uh, and none of that stuff came into these conversations. He was just, uh, just connecting with me. And how long did it take you to reconnect with him? Cause you, you mentioned in the book that you, I don't know, I can't remember the period that elapsed, but you eventually decided I need to find out who this dude is. We did. And yeah. then so he reached out. He ended up pulling me off the bridge that night when I had had uh, let go of the railing. He saved my life, and then uh, it was only it wasn't until a dozen years later that I found out um, who this guy was, and it was because I had done the TED talk. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it was tw twelve or thirteen years, I think. Um, I had done the TED talk, and suddenly I was getting people reach out to me from all over the world because this talk goes viral. Um, yeah. It ends up being one of the most watched TEDx talks ever, uh, and still, I think one of the one of the very few on suicide. Um, I start getting messages from from young people, especially all over the world, who said that I was their stranger in the light brown jacket. And suddenly, wow. instead of feel instead of feeling gratitude for that, you know, so so many people, it happened more times than I can count. Where, where a kid would contact me, say that they went online to Google ways that they could kill themselves. They happened upon my talk, watched it, and stopped, and and didn't kill themselves oh, because they saw that's this so talk. fantastic. And well, and and it is, and it's incredibly gratifying now. But at the time, I was overwhelmed by this imposter syndrome because I didn't know oh, who sure. this stranger was who saved my life. I didn't know if it was even true or if I just made it up as a way to try to cope with my traumatic upbringing or what. So that was really the catalyst. This wave of people contacting me and saying that I had helped them that really drove me to find out who hmm. this person was who helped me. Um, so that's when I asked for the public's help. I went on national television here in Canada. That story went viral all over the world too. Uh, and I ended up reconnecting, finding and reconnecting with this stranger who saved my life. That's, there's two things. One of which is I forgot to mention that you actually let go and you said out loud, either to yourself or to this man, I tried, I tried, I tried. I let go, I'm falling. And that's how you ended the prologue. <laughs> and I was like, no way, I watched the TED Talk. He, can't, he couldn't have fallen. So it, he, as you did that, you actually released yourself. 
Right. You let and, go. And and in my memory, uh, you know, uh, I let go. I remember it was like time stopped. I, I was trying to communicate this idea that time and space and, and everything around you warps and does weird things when you're in this kind of place in your head. Right. Yeah. When when the lens through which you're looking at the world is itself bending and twisted and darkened. Um, uh, and Mike, though, I had a chance. Uh, Mike was the stranger. I later found out who saved my life. I later had a chance to actually sit down and talk with him about all of this stuff. And I put the conversation up on my own so-called normal podcast before the book came out. Um, and he told me that it was probably just, it was, it was just a, a small movement, uh, as he observed it, that then triggered him to jump in and grab me. So it was this, this, wow. uh, we were so closely connected in that moment that what I felt as a giving up, as a giving myself over, only happened in a few seconds. And he detected that and he jumped in right at that moment. Uh, and when he grabbed me, my whole, my body went limp and I just dangled right. over the side of the bridge at that point. But, um, but it was so imperceptible that he caught it because he was paying attention so closely. He was there. He was present. Yeah. He was and fully present. You mentioned in your book somewhere, you said, what if he doesn't like me? Yeah. When you were searching for him, obviously he liked you. He <laughs> came back and saw you. What was it like to meet him for the first time? We, uh, it turned out that uh, a week before I had gone on national television to look for him, he had seen my TED Talk for the first time in which I talked okay. about him. Yeah. And that was the first time that he learned in the 12 years since that I was actually still alive. Like, that's me. <laughs> I'm he, that dude. Yeah. He didn't know. He didn't know. Wow. Uh, so it turned out a week before I asked for the public's help in finding him, Mike had already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. <laughs> this is wow. how the universe was somehow conspiring to after bring After 12 years. Together. He waited After too. 12 years. Um, so he sent me this letter when I went on TV that, that he had started writing. writing rather. Uh, he sent me this letter and he introduced himself. He told me my whole story, but from his angle. It was like watching yeah. my own story from a different camera angle. Wow. Uh, and then we, uh, I brought him up to Toronto where I was living. And I told him I had no idea how to thank him, not just for saving my life, but for for being my role model for my whole life. He gave me my whole life from that moment on. Yeah. So the best I said I could do was to show him the life that he gave me, that he made possible. And I introduced him to my wife and to my then two-year-old little boy. And now he's my second little boy's godfather. And he hasn't met my, no my two-year-old little girl yet, but he will soon. And I, we talked about all the things that I love to do with my life now that I never would have believed would have been possible when I was a 15-year-old kid on the edge of a bridge who he grabbed wow. and saved his life. Man, I love that. That's such a cool story. And I think that anything to do with the darkness of suicide and the, the way your brain was functioning specifically early on in your life and how you turned it around. I mean, that's obviously I think the happy part of the book is how you turned out. This novel or this, not, this memoir has a happy ending and I'm talking to him. You have three little kids now. You have Noah as your firstborn, right? Mm -hmm. And Theodore is your second. Theodore. What's your daughter's name? And her name is Adeline. Adeline. That's so fantastic. And then... Speaking of uh, guardian angels, <laughs> so you had left an executive career at a mental health organization in 2019 and then went off 2017 and started going out and doing what you're doing now, which is speaking and helping mm -hmm. bring awareness to depression, anxiety, suicide, all of those neat things. And you had a good career. 
it was moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Your wife is a teacher. You guys had everything cool. You just moved into a wonderful house in the suburbs. And COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And you, and I can't remember your exact words, but you sat down with your wife and you said, babe, we're in trouble. Every single client has canceled over the last yeah. three days. I have no income coming in. I don't know what we're going to do. You want to talk about that moment? Because that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, it sure was. And I've only got a few minutes left here, but I can say that um, when uh, COVID hit, I had become, you know, like like all of my mental health recovery, um, like my entire career, it had been an iterative upward spiral where I didn't realize at so many times how far I had come until I actually was forced to look back. Uh, yeah. And this was one of those instances where um, I had left my my executive position. I had really gone full tilt into my mental health advocacy and consulting and speaking career, and it was working really well year over year. I was getting better and yeah. better, and it was it was getting more and more um, lucrative. Uh, the more effort I put into it, and the longer I got into it. Um, but then all of a sudden, it all blows up, and I'm brought back to basics, brought back to earth. And it was one of those moments for which I'm still uh, and will always be eternally grateful, actually, because it really showed me, um, as as other um, crises had in the past, how far I had really come, that I'm not the fragile kid that I used to be anymore. Of course, I'm still vulnerable. Everybody's vulnerable. Um, but how this isn't going to be the thing that's going to tear me down, because if I got right. through what I have already, uh, I can get through anything. <laughs> and that's very much how I approach this crisis as well. Uh, with the help of an incredible uh, stranger uh, who came into our story when I opened up about it for uh, on Twitter and then for CNBC, he sent us some money to pay our rent through the summer. And I used that three months grace period that I had to completely pivot my business uh, and to to turn things around entirely. That you know, resilience isn't always about being up. Resilience isn't always about doing well and being happy. Resilience right. is about what you do when you fall down till you pick yourself right. back up. And yeah. that you can only learn through practice. You learn through falling a lot how to get back up a little bit better every time. So that's what I think uh, COVID has shown me. And, and I am committed now to giving back and helping other people uh, to pick themselves back up as well. Because we that's all need great. support uh, in those crises. We do. There's an old Japanese saying, they say, fall down seven times, get up eight. Yeah. That's the idea. And I, I will let you go. I just wanted to mention that last piece because it talks to your resiliency. It talks to all of the effort you put in on your mental health, that you weren't triggered by financial issues with a growing family. Mm-hmm. And, and you were vulnerable enough to reach out and share it and then turn down other people's offers to help until realized like I need to I need to accept this and you also gave you the time and the space to finish your book so yeah. it it allowed you to do all the things you want to do and from my own homework you are doing amazingly well now because of this the book was finished it's fantastic as i already shared you have three happy little babies you're in love with rebecca i didn't get into the Rebecca story, but it was beautiful how you met in high school and she pulled on your backpack. You bought her pearls and she couldn't accept them because she had a boyfriend at the time, but then she came back into your life and now you're married her. Love that story. So at least inject that in there. Um, but thank you again for your time because I love what you're doing. I just started on this journey myself to interview people like yourself 
who I look up to, people that I think are heroes in the world. We need heroes in the world today. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, thanks again for your time coming on my show, Mark. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.